0: another episode of Evidence into Action, the EF podcast that explores all things evidence and and what's relevant particularly for teachers and school leaders and try and translate the insights we get from research evidence. I'm really excited about this podcast, we've got um, a great lineup of guests And our topic is metacognition and and with a particular emphasis around how we take those study strategies aspect of metacognition and put it into practice. And we're going to speak to Professor John Dudlowski from um, Kent State University, who's a renowned expert in metacognition and all things um, study and and has been for for decades. Then we'll speak. To Joe Ashcroft, who's CEO at Click, who will talk very much about metacognition, but what it looks like out in the field and, and how you can mobilize that across schools. And then we'll speak to a brilliant teacher, Freya Morrissey, who's going to explore what this looks like on a subject-specific basis. So we'll we'll cover big areas and we'll get a bit micro and try and really get underneath what we mean by metacognition. I'm going to introduce my co-host, um, Hannah Heron. Hannah. Introduce yourself and why are you excited about metacognition in particular?
1: Hi Alex, I'm delighted to be here. I'm Hannah Heron, and I'm currently the EEF content specialist for learning behaviours with a campaign focus on creating resources to help mobilise metacognition in our classrooms. I'm also a teacher and director of education in Manchester and I've been grappling with how to implement approaches to metacognition in my own classroom and in classrooms across our schools for several years now. So really looking forward to digging into the detail of this.
0: So without further ado, um, let's move on to our first guest. So I'm really delighted to invite our first guest uh, to speak. It's Professor John Dunlosky, um, who is professor of cognitive psychology, um, expert in areas of metacognition and study strategies from Kent State University. Uh, John, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, a bit more about your background?
2: Absolutely. Uh, First, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you all today. And I I started my graduate career in University of Washington, where I was doing research, say over 30 years ago on metacognition. And I know lots of your listeners are very interested in the topic. And at at least at that point, the idea was very new. So for those of you who've been to conferences and seen students at posters, I was the person who everyone was walking by and not looking at. Because metacognition (laughs) was just uh, not well understood, not well studied. So I find it very exciting that over the uh, over the 30 years, it's become such an important topic and discussion. After I got my PhD at um, University of Washington, I went on to a postdoc at Georgia Tech where I did gerontology work, tried to help older adults improve their memory. And that's where I really got interested in the translation of evidence-based strategies to actually improving people's lives. And then Somewhere I had the epiphany that older adults don't need my help so much, but maybe I should focus my efforts on um, basically students who are trying to learn and to achieve and who struggle in the classroom and how the work I was doing with respect to metacognition and strategy use could be applied there. So the last 10 years of my career has really been focused on the nexus between cognitive psychology more broadly and education. Yeah, that's great.
0: And I think um a lot of um English teachers and, and leaders um in this country might be most familiar with your work around strengthening the students toolkit and improving students' learning with effective learning techniques. And I think for a number of years now, they've they've helped percolate and, and actually raise the profile of cognitive science and and I think that application has become really quite broad and and quite common although incredibly varied and we'll probably dig into that. I think perhaps metacognition um, isn't always easily understood in relation to those strategies so that I think that would be something that we pick up. I just wanted to just just recognizing um, now 30 years later probably lots of people have heard about metacognition and they get you know they but they might hear a definition that is hard to make concrete or or perhaps um, even to understand. How do you describe metacognition
2: um, for a bit of a general interest listener? Well, a, a textbook definition, it's just thoughts about thoughts or cognitions about cognitions, which I'm not sure really helps anyone understand the concept that much. It's just thinking about your own thoughts. So I think it's best to consider the components of metacognition individually. I think that's what makes this concept confusing because it's really three interrelated ideas, all revolving around cognitions about cognitions. So the first is just people's beliefs and knowledge they have about their cognitive system. Right? So my belief that retrieval practice is good for memory is a metacognitive belief. Unfortunately, we have lots of misconceptions about how our mind works, which is part of bad side of metacognition, right? So that's knowledge. The other aspect of metacognition that I, most of my research focused on, quite frankly, is monitoring of your ongoing mental processes. So again, now monitoring is about the underlying cognition. That's a more process-oriented. So in the moment, can you monitor your ongoing learning? How accurately can you predict what you've learned, what you understood, and so forth are all part of that component of metacognition. And the third is control processes. That is how you control those underlying cognitions, which is, again, a thought now influencing another thought. And control is basically the application of strategies, decisions students make when they're trying to learn something. It's all about how they're controlling their cognition. And note that none of this is about the content per se, right? It's all acts upon the content that the students are working on. So in a nutshell, yeah, metacognition is just knowledge, monitoring, and control with respect to your underlying cognitive processes. And just, there's, there's quite a lot in there,
0: but I think that kind of separating it out is really helpful because then you can start to move to more kind of concrete understandings about how to apply this. So how, how would you describe, say, a student being overconfident about their learning? You know, I've I've read about this topic. I know it really well. Where does that fit in terms of metacognition,
2: just being perhaps overconfident? Right. So overconfident would certainly fall right squarely into a monitoring component, because this is you're yeah. doing a self-assessment about how well you know. And as you know, one of the most frustrating things as a teacher is to have students come to your office after a test and say, look, I really knew this well. That is, they're really confident in their knowledge, but yet now did poorly on the exam. And it's this discrepancy that's frustrating for the students And for the the instructors too, because you want your students to have a good sense about what they know prior to the test so they can prepare better for that kind of thing. So overconfidence is a monitoring component. What students do about their overconfidence uh, is a control component.
1: Thanks so much, John. Um, I'm interested in picking up a little bit more around where your interest um, in research on metacognition began. So you speak about, you know, being that person 30 years ago who people walked by. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about your research interests, particularly in relation to the components of learning that make up metacognition and, and where they began? What sparked that interest for you? Uh,
2: initially, what sparked the interest to me is reading the small body of literature on monitoring. Now, this is that one small component that showed people were really, really bad at being a, to evaluate how well they learned, even s- simple content. So if I just gave you a list of items to study, you study all of them, and you just predict which ones you'll remember versus which ones you'll forget, people are, are unbelievably inaccurate at that. So they have no self-awareness about what they're learning versus what they won't. And what that led me early on in my career is to try to develop, I would call te- uh, cognitive technologies to help students be better at evaluating what they know versus what they don't know. So that's kind of developed the passion working in this very small area of research on what's called judgments of learning uh, kind of like triggered my interest in the area. And then it started to expand because I realized, well, I can't only study this one component of metacognition. I want to look at the larger system to understand how students knowledge influences their monitoring which then leads to either effective or ineffective control. So kind of all started with very simple, I would say boring research on uh, evaluating how well students could monitor their progress. You mentioned about
0: um, judgments of learning and that might be familiar to uh, a lot of uh, listeners. And it it comes back again to being able to make uh, a not overconfident judgment and accurate judgment from the research then what have you gleaned in terms of uh, the essential ingredients for an enhanced that uh, a more accurate judgement of
2: learning yeah unfortunately there's no magic here in fact when everyone when anyone ever says look i've got the magic pill for success you probably want to turn the volume down right and, and there's no magic it's 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 some of it's going to be straightforward and some of it's going to take effort to do with respect to accurate monitoring i think it at least with, in education, it's good to think first, not only what I want to know or what I want my students to know, but how am I going to evaluate their knowledge? Okay? So if I'm teaching a course and I'm going to evaluate students' knowledge, and this is you know, advanced undergrad courses, 100, 200 mm-hmm. students, so I often give uh, conceptual multiple choice tests, I know they need to understand the content to pass these hurdles. So the best way for them to monitor their progress is to basically simulate the hurdle they eventually have to jump over. So not just read the content and ask yourself, "Ah, am I kind of understanding this, right? Which is a natural thing to do. The difficulty when students just read the content or reread it, they get a sense of fluency and familiarity with it that leads to this like, oh, I know it pretty well. And then just, you know, they could read it 10 minutes later, you could ask them, well, tell me what you read. It's like, oh, geez. I guess I forgot it all, right? So the idea, what I do, at least in my class, gives students lots of opportunities to simulate how they're going to be eventually evaluated. And they could use that as a way of not only monitoring what they know, but I think a more common term for that is self-formative evaluation. So they're doing formative evaluation. What can I get versus what can I get, which is a form of monitoring. And then I spin these in-class simulation attempts into teaching moments because when, when the entire class fails to answer a question appropriately where I think they should know the knowledge, it's like, whoa, I, I, I didn't do a good job in my lecture or I'm not giving the material correctly. So it allows me, right, as an instructor to basically trigger in control processes. So I shift and teach appropriately. So I think in any context where someone wants to monitor their progress toward a task they care to do well, simulate, just like... How anyone would do outside of academia or education when they're preparing for a skill. So, if you want to know whether you can shoot free throws at the big game, you practice free throws. You don't read about them, right? So yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. that's really helpful. Um, and and that sort of um, that
0: formative evaluation, that kind of that made me think about self-testing, testing yourself. Um, and that fits neatly. So you do have um, a new book, which I'm going to ask you about, because it's co-written we'll Hear a little bit about, about that. Um, and it's called uh, Study Like a Champ: Psychology-Based Guide to Grade A Study Habits. And what it does is, is it offers a really accessible um, distillation of, of a lot of the complexity around the research, I think. Um, and that's always, again, so necessary to, to do that translation. One of the things in there, you know, we have... Self-testing is, is one of the strategies lots of teachers in England be familiar with quizzing and 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 you know various approaches. But how does metacognition fit? Because you know, we might know and students might know, well, th- you know, testing yourself is more effective than rereading. And yet the reality plays out that they don't necessarily use the the best strategy. So where does metacognition fit in relation to this, this, this using these more effective strategies?
2: Well, it could fit in multiple different ways. And at least in my experience, more anecdotally, working with individual students, we could tell students often that retrieval practice is good. I tell them that a lot. I have them practice. But yet I still have students come to me and say, well, you told us to take this approach to studying, but it just doesn't work for me. And that's a misconception because we know that some of these basic strategies and those are the ones I focus on work for everybody. I mean, things like retrieval practice works for very young children. Okay? It works for individuals with ADHD. Many of these basic strategies, things like space practice, help honeybees learn. I mean, this is just kind of general learning processes, right? But these misconceptions, right? Well, I'm not going to use it if I don't think it works for me. The question then is how do we overcome the misconceptions by giving individuals uh, experiences that lead to success? So that's one way it comes in. Um, One aspect of these strategies, though, that I'm not sure is totally metacognitive that really provide a big barrier for their use, at least for many students in the States, is that they're not well-trained for time management. And to use some of the most effective strategies to prepare for anything, whether it's in school or outside of school, there needs to be a little goal setting, some planning, some time management, so that you can use the strategies with fidelity. That takes extra effort. That takes extra time. And we do have students here at Kent State across the globe who don't feel like time management is something that works for them. Again, another misconception, right? So there are lots of barriers to break down. And in my mind, the best place to break things down is not where I'm sitting when I get college students, although it's worth trying to break them down here, but much earlier in life when they're first getting indoctrinated into learning and formal learning and so forth. So, um, well, Alex, I hope that answered your question. I think I...
0: Yeah, it does. But but I've got a follow-up that I didn't anticipate asking, um, which I think every listener is probably wondering.
2: So how do honeybees deploy space practice? <laughs> okay, they, they don't. Please answer that <laughs> one. They, they don't. But, well, I, actually, I cannot speak for the honeybird. Honeybee world, okay. On the bee community, uh, but it's very simple to set up e- experiments yeah. where you do uh, basically uh, where they try to locate sources of of pollen and so forth, and show that if they yeah. get space practice, they retain the content better. And I'm yeah. totally for anyone who works with bees. I'm sorry, <laughs> I apologize. I've not read that research in decades. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. used to really be fascinated with bees, though. So. It it may well be a contentious area. No, I you know. <laughs> Uh, I'll Please
0: go thinking forgive. Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, what, one thing, uh, you just made me think about highlighter colours uh, and, and kind of uh, that, that was my mental segue. So one of the things, when, back when I was a school leader, I tried to deploy um, a shift in mindset, you know, those kind of misconceptions with um, school students uh, around about 16, 18 years of age. So, you know, a bit before university um, and trying to get these study habits across to them and one of the things we used to pay for um packs of highlighters for for our GCC students 15 year old students um and we stopped and we talked about banning highlighters because we kind of reflected like on that list they're ineffective what I, I could probably guess what you say to that but is it about actually not the banning of the highlighters—it's about the intelligent use of strategies and about using the tools. So th- there was a little bit of controversy in terms of getting people's attention. Mm-hmm. But actually, the reality was about trying to change their habits. What what are your reflections on the likes of using tools like highlighters? Because they can just be the same as a quiz, right?
2: Which which sounds like self—you know—sounds like it's the best strategy, but could equally Absolutely. be used poorly. First, let me apologize. The monograph that we wrote about this—I I never. And the authors who just did a great job putting all this uh, analysis and meta analysis together never meant to say that any particular strategy was bad in every context. So, if you recall, we kind of we thought it was a great idea. This is my fault. I wanted to rank them just to make it very easy. Like these are really have high utility, these medium and low. But the key is the ranking, there's lots that went into that. And one was, does that strategy lead to gains in learning directly? And that's key. Okay. And just using this highlighter and highlighting typically doesn't have a meaningful boost in performance versus just reading. So if this is all a student is doing is reading and highlighting in many contexts, they probably won't reach their learning objectives. However, and this is—I feel weird that highlighting companies should be coming after me. It's like I tell people, please—I have. In fact, it's at home right now. My favorite highlighter. I have highlighters everywhere because they're a valuable to tool. Partly, I think for students, I I train students how to use this highlighter with their notes so they can set it up to use effective study strategies on their notes, and then they use the highlighters as a tool to help them engage in those strategies. So. I often think now highlighting might be the beginning of this learning journey, but by no means is it the way you're going to end or get to the to the final learning objective. So keep your favorite highlighters and uh,
0: yeah and 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 that's that's metacognition, right? That's that kind of that selection of the right strategy for the right job, you know knowing how how when it's proving effective. So it feels like again, to be metacognitive is to
2: use these strategies in a timely, you know, careful fashion, I suppose. Absolutely. In fact, my least favorite strategy of all is cramming. Yet now that I'm much older and hopefully slightly wiser, at least for college students, I'd say there's definitely appropriate times to to cram depending on your priorities and your current life situation. It's just, please don't solely rely on that, especially if you're going to say, go into the medical industry. Really like the folks to learn that content well, really well.
1: And thinking about um, those teachers out there who are thinking, right, okay, which, which, which purposeful, purposeful strategy should I be teaching the students in my class? Could we just have some reflections on, you know, some some key strategies that 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 your research has shown really, really does work and really does support those learners to be more independent and confident.
2: Hannah, your question had lots of pieces to it. And unfortunately, the evidence, I think across the board with my own research, with other people doing this work, I don't think we know enough to say with great confidence that these strategies will lead to all these wonderful things. Okay, So I want to qualify this with I don't think anyone's strategy is a panacea for all student learning woes. There's kind of the Some generally good strategies, like you all have mentioned, retrieval practice, space practice, and so forth, but there are lots of small strategies students need to use to get over the hump. In my mind, though, especially early on prior to college, uh, K through 12, the degree to which we can start instilling and training students to use a variety of strategies aimed around self-regulation more generally could be extremely effective. And now I'm thinking of generaliz- generalization outside of the classroom. So if we can train students how to set their own goals, again, it would be minimal to start with, right? When you're in first grade, you can imagine those goals would be very different than when you're, you know, high school. Manage their time somewhat so they're responsible for this and then get rewarded for using these strategies. So if I'm thinking, if you know, in my instruction, I try, now I get college students here. The one thing that I use with most success is getting students to embrace successive relearning outside of the classroom, which could be instantiated using a variety of different uh, web-based programs. I've generated my own here for students use at Kent State. And the idea is it allows them to really learn lots of content well, to memorize the content well outside of the classroom so that they wouldn't come to me And we discussed that material. Now they've got it, you know, if they don't understand it all well, at least they have it memorized well so that they can use it more uh, with more fidelity, more facility in the classroom, which allows me then to spend more time on not just introducing concepts, but instructing them about how to understand the concepts and how they interact in larger systems and so forth. So what would I tell instructors to tell students i'm not sure i'd like to talk to parents though i think parents can do a whole lot <laughs> with respect to helping their their young children regulate and teaching them how to become independent learners so I, it,
1: yeah i think that's a a super strong message that actually self-regulation starts in the early years doesn't it and that it's a it's a responsibility of, of all
0: absolutely the, there's a couple of things there john so you talked about with the re- success of relearning there's that kind of, you can remember it. And then you mentioned about then understanding it, perhaps to be able to apply it. And, and then you just talked about teaching the curriculum, but also having kind of, you know, effective s- skills and strategies to learn independently. For you, where 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 do you stand in terms of this kind of, you know, closing the word in metacognition, at the heart of it, you've got cognition there. Where What's the importance of background knowledge and, and kind of that kind of, um, declarative knowledge, background knowledge, whatever kind of label we give for it, in terms of then being able to you know, apply appropriate strategies. What is there a balancing act? Do we need to make sure they've got that secure re- remembrance, and and then they then we work on strategies, or how does that sit? It feels like yeah. a, a bit of a fuzzy
2: area. It is outrageously fuzzy, and I bet you it would do, if we had, let's say, infinite amount of time to collect all the evidence we need. It's going to still be fuzzy because it's going to be moderated by so many different variables that we need to understand about the age of the students, When are, when is it appropriate to teach particular strategies. In the last 20 years, I've become a much more effective regulator of my own cognition because of all I learned. But look at how much I had to devote to learning this to become effective. So we can. When the message becomes too fuzzy, I don't think it'll be useful. And now I think maybe the next step for some of these dialogue is to figure out how to translate what appears to be fuzzy into at least some initial recommendations for usage. So what, one of the things that we've tried to do, John, when we
0: commissioned the literature of your initiative and we created our guidance, seemed to indicate that um, with initiation, it was helpful to specify the aspects, areas of the curriculum, a bit more tightly. So if you take maths problem solving as compared to, say, writing an essay in history, that they're different curriculum tasks and therefore you need to think differently about your strategies and, and they're, they're quite subject-specific in part. But does that help in terms of binding
2: together this kind of this fuzziness? Well, uh, I think it definitely makes it more complicated because it is going to be content-specific. For yeah. instance, we talked a little bit about monitoring, right? And the importance of monitoring, for instance, <laughs> what of my uh, most memorable experiences as a grad student is giving my mentor a manuscript saying, this is ready for submission. And then a week later, getting it back, not being able to see my own typed page because it had so many comments, right? So this is overconfidence, right? I, I, I thought it was ready to go. But yet, obviously, and believe me, my mentor was correct. It was not ready to go. In this case, it was poorly written. The question is, well, if I had the same issue with mathematics, right, with the mass in particular, there are different techniques to use to monitor effectively in those two contexts. So how I'm going to evaluate quality of writing, which (laughs) uh, involves quite a few time-consuming and Uh, Easy to use, but, you know, what can I say? Uh, Strategies that'll make you struggle, right? Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. works for evaluating and assessing quality writing is different than what you're going to need to monitor your difficulties you're having with with math. So this now, unfortunately, puts an extra burden on instructors who, for very Good reason are just struggling to teach students the basic concepts on these two particular aspects of education that students are a anxious about many of them right uh, they struggle with horribly and I can see teachers just kind of pulling their hair out like how am I going to just get the content across so then to ask these instructors to learn say a whole other techniques to instruct their students to monitor the quality of their, I mean, that's a lot, that's a big ask, right? So don't get me wrong. There, are on these different content areas. There are recommendations on how to do this, but um, it's by no means like, Hey, here's one thing I can give you and it's going to work everywhere. So different areas, will have to figure this out differently. And, and no, that's a lot for now a student to hold in their head right? So this is not an easy task to be an effective self-regulator. And what I just hope for is that they become a little less ineffective as they move forward, right? Take more responsibility. Yeah. And if anything, you know, Hannah mentioned what would I, I want uh, the instructors to impart with the students. The ability to embrace failure, uh, and it's such a tough thing because failure hurts, right? It could be emotional, it could be disappointing, and it could completely undermine learning because the students shut down. Versus realize, I have talked to too many students at the college level that say, I'm just not smart, or uh, everyone else is intelligent. And that's so inaccurate. It's just not using the right strategies, time, time management to learn the content. And unfortunately, when they do poorly, right? And this is another metacognitive issue. Instead of attributing their failure to their lack of persistence and use of poor strategies, now they inaccurately attribute their failure to not being intelligent. And I tell my students, if you do poorly, let's just face it, you probably didn't use the right strategies, but that's okay. If you're happy with the low grade, take it, but don't think you're not smart and can't do it because you can. And if you want to do it and you're not, you come see me and we'll get you up to speed. So But this is very difficult waters to navigate because it's so fuzzy. And as much as I think the similarities across human beings way outweigh the differences among us, it's those differences that matter a lot for each individual and how you interact with them. And that's so difficult for an instructor, right? To not only understand how to leverage the similarities that we have, but also to respect and work with those individual differences that that really need support as we're working toward uh, joint learning objectives. I think it's really powerful that you've broadened out kind
0: of metacognition and and strategies towards the kind of the emotional aspect and and degrees of challenge. And, you know, I think probably in the US, as much as the UK, there is a a post-COVID, post-pandemic, and fully through the pandemic, but a reality of students needing that independence, needing that kind of Um, self-efficacy, self-confidence, and their ability to undertake tasks. So we feel like we're opening up a whole new, uh, again, range of related um, knowledge and insights. I'm just a bit worried for our instructors, our our teachers, that there's a lot here for them to to get to grips with. Um, What are your reflections just in terms of uh, almost a final question of the kind of the implementation challenge here of teachers, instructors, knowing... This research and then manageably putting it into
2: action. So, uh, at least in my own reflections, how I've dealt with this is, I, I, I definitely use techniques in the classroom that once I've developed them, I can reuse them over and over again. Uh, imagine something as simple as a set of flashcards, right, that have that you can use for very complicated material and which most students don't, but you can, but these take a long time to develop, right? And put together. So the idea is to use technology. Now, this is where I would lean heavily on technology so that as you're putting all that time and energy to develop some of these general techniques on how you're presenting or having students interact with this content using these strategies in the classroom so that you can use them over and most important, share them with other teachers teaching the same topics right so that there could just be like this library of resources that Mm -hmm. teachers can pull from that employ these strategies like successive relearning retrieval practice um, using worked examples and so forth that you could use over and over again also as they're doing this make the use of these technologies explicit to the students to the degree you're you can. That is, just explain to them why you're doing this. Like when I <laughs> subject to my uh, undergrads to practice tests all the time, I emphasize that these look a lot like the ones on the exam, and I'm doing this to help reduce their anxiety. So let's let's embrace this together. So you know, even early on, if you explain why you're doing something, the light bulb will turn on for some students, and they'll then start embracing these even more and asking for them. So but there's no panacea. I wish there were a magic pill. Uh, If I had one, I'd give it away for free.
0: Well, I think a natural point to end there, John, I think you've given school leaders and teachers and instructors so much in terms of what to think about and in terms of research insights that you, you've given so much of that for free that actually uh, we'll take it. And we know there's still problems, there's still challenges, there's still gaps here. Um, But I'm, Uh, yeah i'm really thankful of all the work that you've supported and and yeah to kind of come back all all the way back to the start how you know your research has reached across the world and informed um teachers is is uh quite impressive feat and and just to take this time as well uh much appreciated
2: so thank you really appreciate your time thanks for having me on it was my pleasure and a great time
1: thanks john
0: So, I'm delighted to introduce our next guest. It's Joe Ashcroft, who's CEO of the Click Cooperative Trust over in Greater Manchester, um, former research director at Aspira Research School. Uh, Joe, tell us a bit about yourself and your background in education.
3: Uh, yeah, hi. So, uh, yeah, I'm the the CEO and also the executive head teacher uh, for the Click Trust um, up in Greater Manchester. We've got four schools in Manchester and one in Tameside. Uh, really diverse schools, but all primary. Um, and yeah, prior to that, I have been, um, as Alex says, a, a director of Aspira Research School for four years. Um, and prior to that, I've been an education director um, for a, another large trust based in the northwest. Uh, director of a teaching school and prior to that head teacher um, of two schools over in Cheshire as well.
0: And, and just based on that background we kind of we'll get into it a lot I think but you've worked with a range of different schools different professional development situations etc so I think we'll pick up on that. Can you just say what Click stands for just for any curious listener?
3: Yeah, so CLIC stands for Changing Lives and Collaboration, Um, and the the sort of main vision statement of our trust is that together we make the difference, so it's all about meaningful collaboration and changing the lives uh, of the children and the people within the communities of the schools through working together effectively and in a meaningful way.
0: Brilliant, that sounds really positive, thank you. Um, And my first question, so you're a really experienced school leader, why for you is focusing on metacognition important?
3: So for, for many reasons, um, and I guess the sort of most obvious reason is that the there is a massive evidence base um, for metacognition and the evidence base has consistently over time been really positive. Um, you know, it, looking at the, for example, the, the EEF teaching and learning toolkit at the moment it is and has been for many years the highest impact approach in education. And I think particularly um, in recent years when it's been particularly been shown to be effective for disadvantaged learners of which, you know, we've got really diverse schools within the, uh, our trust of schools at the moment. We, we've got lots and lots of disadvantaged learners and it's shown to be particularly effective for disadvantaged learners and at the primary age phase. Um, so that that's one of the real reasons why um, it really matters and it really means something to us. But also, as well as the evidence base and it kind of, um, you know, the evidence base suggesting it would be a good match um, for, for the schools that I'm working with currently, um, it also really responded to some of the needs that we'd identified as a trust. So when we were looking at where we were, what was the sort of the really, um, you know, precise reality of where we were um, when we started our journey with metacognition a couple of years ago, it was about whether metacognition was a good match and it was in so many ways um, it responded to a lot of uh, a lot of the position where we were at the time so you know progress for our disadvantaged learners being slightly lower than it was for their non-disadvantaged peers for example Um, you know that there being some recognition that um, perhaps uh, progress retention sorry of learning across wider curriculum subjects and foundation subjects was not quite as strong as within the core subjects Um, and also sort of a, a real um, recognition around pupil learning behaviours, particularly post-COVID actually, that a lot of those really independent learning behaviours had taken a bit of a backward step. Um, and so for all of those reasons, when when starting um, our journey with metacognition at CLIC, which was in September 2020, um, it was a really, you know, the evidence base is really strong, but more than that, it was a really good match to where we were as a trust at that point as well. But you know beyond beyond our trust because as you said at the start Alex I've worked with lots of schools in lots of different settings on metacognition and what we generally find is metacognition is a is a fairly good match for a lot of the problems or a lot of the you know the um the priorities that schools have got um because the evidence base is so strong around pupil progress
0: can I just ask about you made that point about retention and kind of elements of post-COVID perhaps but just broadly it's always a challenge isn't it that you know primary school pupils kind of remembering what they've been taught sustaining that and kind of building that knowledge how for you does metacognition help support that
3: So, you know, it's the the two, for for me, the the curriculum design and the kind of pedagogy of which metacognition is a massive part of the pedagogy for the enactment of the curriculum, they go hand in hand. So, um, you know, it's really easy to think that if we look at our curriculum and we make sure it's spaced and we make sure there's lots of opportunities to kind of uh, revisit content, that that kind of, enables our children and our learners to really retain what they're learning across the curriculum but the reality of it is there is a need to enhance pedagogy as well and an approach to make sure that when we're enacting the curriculum that that happens in practice Um, and so metacognition for me um, is a it is a really sort of essential and effective way um to enact the curriculum effectively for retention so um for example even if we just think of the um of the metacognitive cycle of the way in which we um, enable our learners to plan and to monitor and to evaluate the success of their plan with their learning and to change their learning behaviors as a result of that in order to effectively plan we're encouraging children to activate their prior knowledge which gives us a real structure through which to get children to refer back and retrieve their prior knowledge and to refer back um, across the curriculum and across their prior learning, all of which improves retention. And again, you know, there's there's a real wealth of evidence around retrieval practices and spacing, which, um, you know, can be done really well or it can be done really poorly but actually you know that the metacognition cycle um, and that activating prior knowledge really um, you know really enables that to be done effectively Um, and you know and, and, and for us we're already reaping the benefits of that and seeing learners retaining far more across the curriculum than they might otherwise
1: have done. You know you're two three years into your implementation plan on metacognition for me what's really exciting is what that looks like. So what does success look like? So if I were to walk into one of your classrooms, what learning behaviours would I see? What teacher behaviours would I see? And how is it different to where it was at the start of your journey?
3: yeah so something that you'd see consistently um across the schools that have been on this journey is you would see um the activation of prior knowledge it was the first thing well second thing after getting there sort of the evidence base and that deep rooted knowledge at the beginning was the first thing in terms of a teacher practice that we said we were going to be tight on and that is really consistent and what you would see if you walked into classrooms is you would see um you know it's called different things in different schools but for example if you walked in um you um, to one of the schools they might be said, referring to it as bridging back um, and sort of saying you know we're going to bridge back to what's gone before and um, you know essentially it's it, you know we're working with children who are aged three to 11 and therefore that sort of analogy of bringing the knowledge that we've already got and the skills we've already got across the bridge um to to strengthen the memory that we've already got of that existing knowledge, but also to help us hook this new learning in and apply, you know, and, 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 you know, create the plan for our learning. That is really consistent. And it's not just consistent um, in terms of you seeing it as a teacher behavior, because it was really interesting about, nine months or so in what i saw was i saw that in every classroom that i went into at any time whether it be that i was walking past a classroom whether it was that i was popping in and it happened to be the start of a lesson and i, I you know i was going into you know, see somebody about something or whether it be that we were doing, dare I say it, like a deep dive, uh, you know, of a subject and, you know, and and really uh, more deeply looking into a subject. I saw it everywhere. But what I didn't consistently see was when I spoke to children about their learning and saying to the children, what really helps you to remember what you've learned and what really helps you to apply what they've learned? Um, they were they talked, you know, they could if, if prompted talk about it, but they weren't talking about that as a behavior that they took, um, you know, that they, they recognized themselves. But now when I speak to any group of children about what it is that supports them with their learning within a lesson, how they how they're supported to you know what they can do to help remember more. They all talk about whether it's activating prior knowledge or build, bridging back. The language doesn't really matter so long as it's consistent across the school. But the children talk about that now, and they recognise that the reason they do that is because it strengthens strengthens the memory of what they already learn. But that it also brings the knowledge that they need to that lesson. So that's an example um of what we see now that we wouldn't have seen um two years ago another thing is this real kind of structured reflection um sort of you know throughout throughout a lesson but also um you know particularly sort of towards the end of a learning sequence really having that structured reflection and that supporting the children to evaluate the success of their learning and that's far less surface level than perhaps it used to be so it's not about a you know how have we got on how do we feel about it it's far more about how effective was that strategy how effective was it that you used that existing knowledge that you already had and most importantly you know we've Uh, I should have said said this earlier, but one of the things we started off with was what is metacognition and what do we want a definition as a trust to be of metacognition? So that we're all really clear. And we said it's the way in which children direct their learning by planning, monitoring the success of their plan and evaluating the success of their plan. And they change their learning behaviours as a result of that. And it's that change, their learning behaviours as a result of it, that that structured reflection really lends itself to. And the children in our trust now are so articulate when they're talking about, actually, do you know what? I used this strategy and I thought it would be the most successful, but I just wouldn't use it again because I found myself getting really frustrated part of the way through. Uh, Or they might say, oh, I thought that strategy was going to be really difficult. But actually, I found it loads easier. I'm definitely going to do that again. Um, So you'd see that consistently in place that you wouldn't have seen a couple of years ago. And the other thing that has come, which sort of, you know, better cognition and cognitive science kind of go go hand in hand and you know um a lot of the sort of study techniques in cognitive science do really lend themselves to older learners those who are studying at you know undergraduate or secondary level but actually we were looking at if those are really successful study strategies things like um self-testing practice testing spacing the learning out interleaving of learning um and so on that what did that mean for us you know what does that mean for the three-year-olds who are in our nurseries what does that mean for the children who are in year two, year four, year six and so on and how are we going to reduce the scaffolding over time so children begin to do that independently and now you see just the most amazing array of ways in which that has been applied within the classrooms and that is Just for me, the very best example of the looseness of it, but the tightness at the same time, the tightness is staff really understand retrieval practice. It's not a quick recap and review. It is about the children challenging, finding it quite, quite difficult at times to remember what's gone before, but to force themselves to kind of self-test or to to retrieve, to then apply and, and continually build the schema and hook more and more understanding and knowledge onto the existing knowledge. And those practices, you know, you might go into one class and they might be using flashcards. You might go in another and they might have a multiple choice question. You might go in another and they might have whiteboard flash, um, you know, multiple choice questions. Or they might have a, you know, a a flashback, flashback four kind of thing, four things you're going to flashback through, one, one from a... A week ago or a day ago, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, however, it looks within each individual school is less important than the fact that it's in place with a deep rooted understanding of staff from the staff of why we're doing it. Um, and the, the thing that we would see now from where we were in September is the way in which metacognitive talk has evolved. Um, So we'd had a real focus, particularly post-COVID, but also with the the diverse catchments uh, and and diverse sort of groups of of pupils that we work with upon language and early language skills in particular. Uh, And metacognitive talk was a really, you know, a really sensible follow on. Once we've done the work that I've already described with metacognition and the work that we've done on development of early language, it was the natural next step for us in terms of metacognition. And actually, Seeing children articulate not just their cognition, but their learning behaviours and their metacognition is now something that we're starting to see come through really effectively. And that's just we started our work together on that collectively in September. And we're now starting to see children articulate their metacognitive skills
1: really, really well. And they know that that's what they're doing now as well. Um, Can you give me an example of what that might look like in a Key Stage 2 classroom? Just because I'm curious.
3: Yeah, so it's, it's children who are talking out loud and saying getting really frustrated with this but rather than saying I'm getting really frustrated with this and therefore I feel like I'm on the verge of giving up that they might be getting really frustrated with this so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to stop that bit and I'm going to think is there another strategy I could use is there an easy bit that I could just get done as opposed to um, sitting getting frustrated Um, it's also children who are talking about um, they're not talking about work they're talking about learning And they're talking about how challenging they might find their learning, but that that's okay. Um, And you know, so for example, um, at Old Moat, they've got a really good system there where throughout the lesson, the children are reflecting on the learning not on the work that they're doing, but on the learning that they're doing and how challenging their finding it and how that makes them feel Um, they've got a real focus at almost around self-efficacy and children having a really accurate um, you know understanding of of where their learning's at and that wherever it's at it's okay but we're making a plan for how to move it forward so you see children there um, who are talking about I found that really challenging but but that's okay because what I did was I did this challenge or actually I found this um, learning you know, slightly easier than I'd anticipated, but that's good because it means that I'm really ready because I know we're going on to this. Um, you know, at the next stage in the learning. Um, so yeah, I could give loads of examples of, but it, it kind of just permeates every lesson and it permeates the way that children talk to each other. It permeates the way in which cooperative learning structures are set up within the the classes when children are talking with one another. It's been a real shift from just to talk about cognition to actually talking about the learning behaviours, the strategies, and the processes
0: that's really useful and i think it it brings to life and the reality in the classroom let's It doesn't, again be a bit too abstract you know that you mentioned earlier learning to learn thinking about thinking well what does that really mean but what you've described there is a really kind of powerful people's controlling you know they're learning when they're doing a tricky task about using strategies bridging back to things they know which is again something we know children of all ages don't quite do um, all the way up to, to university so that was really powerful uh, thank you Joe. thank you for your time we really appreciate it
3: no problem thank you very much for having me
0: I'm really pleased to invite our third and final guest Freya Brian Morrissey Freya's a teacher of English and and leads an English department um, down at Tain School, Kingsbridge Research School. Um, Frey, do you wanna talk a little bit about, about your school, about your background and about your interest in medical mission?
4: Yeah, sure. So um, my school is a secondary school. Um, we've got 11 to um, 18 here. So we've got key three, four and five, um, and it's part of Education Southwest. So um, uh, multi-academy trust. Um, and as part within that trust, we've got a school that is a research school. So we've got Kingsbridge Research School, I've worked with Kingsbridge Research School um, for a few years as an um, an evidence lead um, with a particular focus on um, metacognition.
0: Great, and let's dive into it then, and talk about how can teachers support pupils to become more metacognitive in their classrooms?
4: So I think um, supporting students to become more metacognitive starts with teachers being more consciously aware of metacognition as a teachable part of learning um, and become more aware of their own thought processes as teachers when approaching the kinds of learning tasks that we ask students to do. Um, I think it's quite easy in teaching to suffer from the curse of the expert. So so to forget how automatic our use of um, knowledge and strategies often is. Um, so thinking about how we would approach a task and the knowledge and thought processes we'd bring to it um, is a starting point for supporting students to become more metacognitive because it enables us to make our implicit thinking explicit to the students um, and thereby give them access to the knowledge and the strategies that experts are able to draw on. Yeah. Um, the way that teachers narrate a lesson as well and, and why we're focusing on particular things, why we're asking students to do something a particular way, that, I think, is part of supporting students to become more metacognitive, um, understanding why and how we approach things the way that we do in the classroom so for example all of our lessons begin with a quick recall quiz of core subject knowledge which I know a lot of schools um, have a similar system Um, but it's important for students to understand why we do this so we explain to them that frequent retrieval practice helps them to learn the content and helps it to stick over time and of course they experience that too they they see that in their own learning Um, but we'll also sometimes ask them remind me why do you do why do we do this at the start of every lesson Um, Or if we teach them a particular planning strategy for writing essays, um, we'll explain why we're using a particular approach. But then when we revisit that subsequently, we'll ask them why. Um, And it's trying to give them a sense of understanding and ownership over that knowledge. And the impact of that is that you see more students using the strategies that we teach them in a more self-motivated way because they understand the purpose and it becomes part of their toolkit and not just something that we're asking them to do.
0: It's really interesting. You mentioned about um, narrating the lesson. That sounds really interesting. About um, and you mentioned writing. So in English, you've got these kind of complex processes where you're often reading, you know, really difficult, challenging, but really interesting texts. Could be a Shakespeare play, could be poetry, and you're narrating almost the thinking during that reading. And then you get a piece of writing. They're writing an essay, some narrative writing. Do these kind of do these kind of major tasks just feel like well metacognition just has to be part of these because they're so complex and and multifaceted.
4: Yeah absolutely and I think one of the reasons why I got interested in metacognition in the first place was an understanding that actually hang on a minute just teaching the content isn't helping the students to be able to do the things and there was a gap there between the subject knowledge and then the ability to do something with that subject knowledge independently and so that that was where my sort of early
1: interest of metacognition evolved from. So one of the current challenges I think facing many of us at primary level is how do we improve pupils writing so I guess a a really interesting follow-on from that is what does that look like at secondary level how do you support pupils to become more confident independent writers?
4: Yeah, that's a really good example, I think. Um so I think one of the things that we notice in that transition is that students sometimes get, seem to go backwards before they go forwards again. And I think you know we're we're all aware of that, both in primary and, and secondary. And and the reasons for that are obviously complex, um, but that sort of cognitive load of coming into secondary school and the expectations all suddenly being different is is a real challenge. But with the actual sort of writing itself, um one of the things that I think can be quite different between primary and secondary is the level of support that students get and also in secondary there's a bit of a, a tendency sometimes to give them one shot at a piece of writing whereas often in primary there's there's the drafting process um more frequently and that's something i know that we're working on in key stage three how we can bridge that gap a little bit more effectively for them in the curriculum but they need to work more independently they need to have a more successful first draft the first time um, That then leads us to think about things like supporting their knowledge of of planning strategies, um, which goes all the way from key stage three up up through to key stage five. And actually, before you start writing, before you respond to the stimulus, actually stop and think. And um, certainly also um, when we think about those students that plan and those that don't, um, helping students after they've done a piece of work to see where a successful plan was used in a successful piece of writing. So some of my most metacognitive students, who coincidentally, I'm sure, are also some of my most successful students, um, you can see how they use their plan and um, tick stuff off or use different colored highlighters to identify different things um, within their plan that help to tick different parts of the mark scheme or the success criteria. Actually, using those successful examples and sticking them under the visualizer and talking through how they work and why they're effective really supports those less better cognitive learners to go, oh, okay, oh, I could do that um, because it's not rocket science; it's just a strategy. Um, I think as well, one of the bigger challenges that we have is around timings of writing. Um, it can be in Year Seven when we might give them half an hour to write a description of something. Um, so we've got a gothic a scheme of learning they write a gothic description they have half an hour and then you'll have students who say oh but i haven't finished i haven't finished and actually supporting them to go well what can you accomplish in half an hour how do you plan half an hour's worth of content look back at other tasks and see how many paragraphs you managed to write or how many pages you wrote in that time and and try to plan accordingly and helping them with that monitoring aspect of their their writing when you move to key stage four key stage five you think about exam strategies and timings within the exams too you know do you drill them in writing the timings on the exam paper um, or you know do you do you get them to do a particular question first because it's higher value there's lots of different ways that we can approach it but it's about that kind of monitoring of the time that's passing and what they're able to achieve within it Um, we can also think about actually with the writing when they struggle as well so thinking reflecting on their previous work and saying, well, what did I find hard there? Where did I get stuck? And using that knowledge of themselves to then inform, okay, well, how can I get unstuck if that happened this time? Or what did my friend do when they had a similar situation? And that reflection on what they themselves are bringing to a task that might help or hinder them, um, and just making them a little bit more self aware as learners and as writers, um, mm. I think just supports them in that greater independence, greater sense of self efficacy. Um, and then around that, you of course have the content. Let's learn how to use semicolons. But actually, it's those processes, yeah. those strategies, um, that that really support them.
0: That's re- that's really interesting. One one thing I'd like to follow up on. So, uh, John Dolosky's indicated that kind of students, even all the way up to university, aren't quite as strategic, as independent, as metacognitive as we think. And and you're describing quite a lot of kind of embedded strategies. Is that something you notice in terms of there's assumptions about key stage five students that they can do things and that we don't need to, we expect more independence than perhaps they're, they're ready for?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we've really grasped this opportunity to design our new A-level course. And we're building in those study skills as if they've never been taught them before. before. Um, because sometimes with year 12, it can feel a little bit like they've never been taught them before because they, they have that transition again and they can go a little bit backwards before they go forwards again. So I think we've got this opportunity within Key Stage 5 to actually build study skills alongside content. I have definitely been guilty previously of, you know, certainly earlier on in my teaching, um, of thinking that Year 12s were much more than just Big Year 11s. Um, And I I think that actually they, they... they can be very well supported with the strategies and the study skills because they've got um, more opportunities for independent learning, because the um, emphasis on homework and that, that independent study and independent reading is much greater. We almost need to hold their hand that little bit more in Key Stage 5 to, to help them to raise up to that, that level.
0: It might be quite short, mightn't it, for, you know, for some students at Key Stage 5. They just need a reminder of planning approaches they just need a nudge about editing and, and using a checklist and going back to their plan so I, I i think there's a an awareness here of not making assumptions about age and stage you know, go back to your point hannah primary school you know there's lots, lots of students who are working very skillfully independently on complex tasks and that's an assessment around writing in year six that they have to exhibit but then almost like the game keeps changing you talked. to fray about different transition points and and we've got to be wary i think as teachers that as we transition from primary to secondary or from gcc to a level to not make assumptions and to almost retrain and and make sure those study study skills are strong they're embedded they're independent and that might need some repetition
4: and some nudges yeah i think as well sometimes undoing some of the strategies that they've relied on at key stage four because. demands of Key Stage 5, both the the contents but also the the, um, sort of tasks that we're asking them to do, sometimes something they've relied on to get them through GCSE isn't enough for A level and so removing that safety blanket and giving them other strategies to use um, I think is part of that. Yeah.
1: So moving on to the next question, um, it's around it's around professional development really. And I know that you've been involved at that both at school and research school level. So um the next question is around how how have you supported staff to develop metacognition? And I'm particularly interested in it in what you found useful around helping staff to bridge that knowledge doing gap that you referred to earlier.
4: Yeah, so I, I think um so something that I find really useful, and I return to it myself quite frequently, is thinking about our most metacognitive students and taking an example of, of them. So maybe taking your sort of two or three best students and thinking about what it is they do that makes them good in English. What is it that what are their observable behaviors? What are their processes that they actually do? There are effective learners. And then thinking about the other end of the class, the students who really struggle with their learning. What is it that they do? So thinking about you know visually, what do we see in the classroom that those Ineffective learners are doing or not doing that, our effective learners maybe are doing something a little bit different. And then thinking, well, where does the teacher stand in relation to those students that can't yet do these things? And a lot of the time, I'm not talking sort of subject knowledge here necessarily, I'm thinking sort of processes and strategies and the behaviors. What can the teacher do? How can they prompt? How can they narrate? How can they encourage and praise to move those ineffective learning behaviors closer? to the more effective learning behaviors. So an example of that might be, um, I mentioned earlier on recall tasks that we use frequently at the beginning of lessons. I know that my effective learners, once they've done as much as they can from memory, will look back in their books and will look for that information in the books. As a teacher, by pointing out, oh, look what that student's doing. You know, that's a really smart move. They're looking back in their book for the answers that they're not sure about and actually using that praise of another student to then prompt a behavior in students who maybe are floundering a little bit and then noticing that that student who was floundering is now doing the thing and pointing that out and like, oh yeah, that's a great idea, you're, you're using that strategy. I think that can help to bridge that gap between the less effective students, those who are less metacognitively aware, those that might not have the strategies at their fingertips, make explicit what an effective student is doing, point it out, praise it, and actually make that part of the norm in the classroom I think can be really powerful.
0: I think that's a brilliant end because we've shrunken down metacognition which can be a bit fuzzy a bit all-encompassing to something concrete manageable I love this idea of just modeling how we think modeling how we tackle tricky tasks Uh, that feels like an ideal way to end thank you Freya for your time really appreciate it
1: thanks so much Freya that was always so super interesting listening to you talk about metacognition in a fellow very geeky way
0: It was really interesting to go from that big picture um, with Professor Dunlosky about metacognition and kind of what it is and, and all those aspects of decades of research, but then to explore with Joe and Freya about that practical application, the challenges, how to distill metacognition down into something meaningful and not some, you know, some abstract fuzzy notion like thinking about thinking. H- Hannah, what are your kind of what are your overall reflections? What 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 kind of threads are you pulling um, from from those interviews?
1: So I think for me, my key takeaway is all around this idea of being really explicit. So that it's really important as adults not for us to make assumptions when it comes to learning for st- learning or study habits. And the more adults, as explicit le- as, as expert learners, can make our implicit actions explicit for pupils through modelling. The better whether that is modelling our own self-regulation or modelling how to use flashcards when revising or modelling our own metacognitive processes as we solve a challenging problem but more than that I think it's about being explicit with pupils about why we're using a particular strategy but then coming on to thinking about implementation it's about being explicit with adults about what we're going to implement and how.
0: Yeah really good I and you just mentioned there about flashcards, so um, I look back and think about one thing I did as a school leader. I was trying to have a bit of a whole school approach to um, GCSE exam preparation in particular. We produced some resources and you know, we, we paid for those packs and, and we had you know the aforementioned highlighters I mentioned, but we also had packs of flashcards. And I remember in year one of that we bought flashcards. I think we've been buying flashcards for two or three years, but I don't think at any point we actually spent time to work through with students what a flashcard looks like and how to create one yourself. Now, I, I know there's lots of online tech versions now and, and lots of choice but fundamentally I think at that point being explicit these might be good strategies but they might then be applied to your science revision at GCC. A flashcard mightn't be so appropriate for younger children. A set of flashcards for even for university students might get Used quickly and and dropped too soon. So I, I I really that stood out for me as well. That explicitness. I, I think my final reflection um, was that again, like flashcards, like highlighters, that there is no strategy that solves it all. There is no silver bullet. You know, as as John mentioned, um, unfortunately. Um, And also, you know, where we have the evidence says something is, you know, a better bet or or not a very effective strategy, like highlighters, you know, in in the table ranking um, that John famously kind of um, shared in his research, people just had the notion of kind of let's get rid of highlighters. But actually, metacognition is about being strategic and controlling the use of those strategies to do that job. So it really stood out to me there's as we've moved through this kind of greater engagement with metacognition, the cognitive science and, and some of these strategies for children, young and old, there's something about being really careful about supporting students to think about their use and to do this well independently. And I, I think that's a a maturity in our understanding, at least in my understanding, maybe it's just me, about kind of the nuance of metacognition and the nuance of you know best bet strategies that we want to use in the classroom. Um so yeah really real privilege thank you everyone for listening as ever uh please do um press subscribe to the podcast uh, we'll have some upcoming sessions on early years on send in mainstream um and the usual kind of array of brilliant guests experts and, and brilliant teachers so Uh, final word then Hannah thank you very much for your time and being a brilliant um, guest host Uh, really appreciate it thank you
1: thanks Alex